Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a bevy of my colleagues. Of course, there's Chris Drees. Chris, hey, Chris, how are you? Doing well. Doing well. That's good. And we're missing um, Ms. Dina Tatley again? She, I guess yes, she's not we are. Well. Yeah, COVID, She'll I be heard. back soon. She'll be back soon. Yeah, she'll be back soon. So we'll miss her. But uh, in her stead, we've got uh, four other uh uh, folks, uh, colleagues. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Juan Pablo Fuentes. Uh, JP, how are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? I'm always good. Okay. Always good, Juan Pablo. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll explain in a minute why we've got this bevy of economists, but just to finish the introductions, we've got Mike Brisson. Mike? Hey, Mark. How's it going? And I should say uh, Juan Pablo is our, an expert on energy markets, oil markets, and Mike is our expert on the auto vehicle market. Maybe you'll, you're kind of figuring out now what the topic at hand is going to be. I'll give you one more hint. We got Bernard Yaros. Bernard, how are you? Good. I'm doing well. Good to see you, Mark. He's the Renaissance man. I won't explain. Like I embarrass him every time he's on, but I won't do that this time. And Martin Worm. Hey, Martin. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Good. And, and the thing about Martin is I always get the city he's in wrong. I keep saying <laughs> Portland. I think, but you're actually saying Seattle. Yeah, I'm in Seattle, and it very much goes with sort of East Coast stereotypes about the Pacific Northwest out here. It's, it's where you go <laughs> right. to with your spinster and it's all kind of in the woods somewhere. All I have to say is, Mark, you 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 look like you belong in Portland. I I don't know what that means exactly. Don't take it the wrong way, but yeah, it's the. Yeah. I, I I will say this: I I come off surgery, so I haven't trimmed my beard, and I was going to do it today, but my wife hates the hair, so I didn't quite get to it. Is a is a, smoking a reefer in uh, Portland? Oh no, you're in Seattle. You're in in Seattle. Seattle, is that <laughs> is that legal? Yeah, well, it is legal by state law, but of course not by federal law. Uh, oh. I will say that. Uh, and it's about the general look here. I think what you're referring to is more closing time at the lumber mill, and I've adapted that since I've been living here. Not so much <laughs> okay. the habit. Okay, very good, very good. And Martin's going to focus on. Uh, he's our expert on monetary all things on monetary policy. Of course, Bernard obviously is on. Uh, the federal government. Listener, are you figuring this out yet? What's going to go on here or what we're going to do? Uh, we're going to have a, uh, what this, and this may be the title of the podcast. I'm not sure what could go wrong. And, you know, we, we've been, um, you know, I think relatively uh, optimistic about the economy's prospects, pretty consistently. So saying, yeah, recession risks are high, but uh, we think we'll be able to get through this period without an actual NBER-defined recession. And I'll have to say, too early to declare victory here on that one, but it's feeling pretty good at this point. Inflation has been coming in very nicely. It's not going to be a straight line back to the Fed's target, but in, it's going to take some time, but we're headed in that direction. And that's all happened without a single basis point increase in the unemployment rate, which is pretty incredible. So you know, uh, things are going pretty well, certainly compared to the fears. And the purpose of this podcast is going to be focused on what could go wrong. You know, what, the, what could uh, send us, uh, uh, send things off the rails here. And, you know, obviously recession risks are still high. The economy is still very fragile. We're not growing very quickly. And in that context, you know, if anything doesn't kind of stick to script here, uh, you know, we could be, we could go into recession. So recession risks are high. So, each of the of my colleagues here are going to be focused on one of those what could go wrong things, and I thought we'd organize this in terms of uh, what is the most immediate threat to what 
uh, would be a kind of a longer term threat. So we're going to begin with oil prices. But before we go down that path, uh, the other thing that happened this morning, right before we started the podcast, is Jay Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, gave his speech at the, the Jackson Hole uh, Confab. Uh, and I thought it'd be useful just to get a sense of what he said and, and what it means. So maybe Martin, because you are the expert on monetary policy for us, what what did the chair have to say? Yeah, so in, in many ways, the meeting was, I guess the, the speech was perceived as a little bit hawkish, but it was certainly much less hawkish than it was a year ago when the Fed really pivoted on inflation. The mainline narrative continues that the Fed remains committed to the 2% inflation target and will essentially do whatever it takes to get there. The particular points of concern that the chairman spoke about a little bit is the fact that consumption growth still looks remarkably stable. The economy hasn't quite cooled as much as the Fed would like to see, that labor markets haven't quite softened as much. In part, that leaves open the probability of another hike at one of the next two meetings, but, but it will certainly mean beyond that is the Fed is going to start cutting rates much, much later than we previously anticipated. If you go back to March, markets thought that the Fed might cut later in this year. By now, the expectation is really more towards summer of next year. And it will take a lot for the Fed to be ready to take that step. In terms of market reaction, we didn't see a very strong reaction, far as I can tell as of now. Uh, certainly not like we saw last year. So markets are still taking their strides. So the Fed is certainly a little bit more relaxed than they were a year ago. But the risks remain and commitment to the inflation target is, is sort of a strong takeaway from, from the speech, I would say. So, so no, really no new news. I mean, basically reaffirming the 2% inflation target, uh, reaffirming that uh, that uh, rates likely will remain high for an extended period to ensure that inflation comes back into that target in, in a timely way. Uh, that was that is that did I get that right? Is that the message, the overarching think, message? I think that's fair to say. I mean, the, really, okay. if there is any new data point, which is really not all that new, is that economic data up until the second quarter came in a little higher than expected, which is great, of course, because it reduces recession risks. But it's a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that it also might mean the Fed will have to get rates higher for longer. You know, that's sort of what Powell again stressed. Okay. Hey, Chris. Um, I think you had a chance to read the speech too. I, I yeah. actually haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, did uh, you want to fill any gaps there that Martin left? Uh, or did he get that? Uh, the uh, is his synopsis uh, kind of complete? Yeah, I, I think he. Uh, I think he got it. And the market reaction, as you mentioned, was uh, fairly neutral. There was a bit of whipsawing, and the stock market went up first, and then it came back down. But it's kind of where where it started the day. So not. Not too much of a, uh, a, not a very significant reaction. Treasury yields also climbed what, four or five basis points on the ten-year. So, which isn't a whole lot given the volatility in that market. It's, it seems Correct. like every day it's yeah. moving four or five basis. Yeah, points. yeah. So maybe there was or, some excuse. Or ten basis points. Yeah, yeah. So clearly, investors are reacting to the speech. Right, does suggest higher for longer, but uh, or confirm, I guess, higher for longer, but nothing uh, to your point out of the ordinary. Uh, perhaps one omission, if you will, in the speech, as uh, he, uh, Powell didn't really talk about R star, the neutral rate, hmm. uh, at all. So that's a subject of debate among economists. Um, R star being what is the, that? Uh, the terminal rate, the, the neutral rate of the neutral uh, rate. Uh -huh. uh, for federal funds, right? So the real neutral rate. There's a considerable debate of what that that should be. So how much above the inflation rate should the um, 
So just for the listener, though, the, 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 the R star neutral rate equilibrium rate is the rate that would be consistent with the monetary policy, neither adding or subtracting to economic growth, kind of neutral to growth. That's right. Right. That's right. And, and right now, the, if you look at the Fed's estimate of the neutral rate, or at least implied, looking at their projections every quarter, it's two and a half percent. The nominal federal fund rate is two and a half percent. Of course, the federal fund rate today is five and a quarter to five and a half. So well above neutral. So monetary policy by that standard is highly restrictive, but you're saying there's a lot of debate as to, is it two and a half? Is it still two and a half, right? Is it still two and a half? It could be, I think people are saying, could it be higher? That's right. That's right. There seems to be more consensus building around maybe three, some even go to three and a half percent because of some structural shifts in the economy that maybe um, when the Fed does start to cut, they won't go all the way back to two and a half. The land at three, and that will be, to your point, equilibrium. So he didn't really, uh, Powell didn't really engage in that part of the bait, right? And probably appropriate at this point because mm-hmm. it is, you know, it's a, it's more of a theoretical discussion. You can't really measure this that well, certainly not in real time. It's more retroactively and it's, it's more conceptual or theoretical. So I, I think not something that you necessarily want to engage with in a, in a public forum like this when you're trying to still calm some nerves. Uh, out there. So he committed to the 2% inflation target. I think that was important. But other than that, I don't, I didn't see much in the speech that kind of would derail investor opinion. Okay. In, in, in our, in our forecast, we have the, we have the current funds rate target five and a quarter, five and a half. That's the terminal rate. That's the highest the rate's going to get in this cycle. That's our forecast. And the first rate cut isn't until June of next year, the June FOMC meeting. Is that pretty consistent with market expectations at this point? Do you know, Chris, looking at futures? I just took a quick peek to see if there was any reaction. It looks like markets are pretty convinced that there will be no hike in our, uh, no hike or cut, I guess, in in September. And then things get a little bit more mixed as you look a little further out. So in November, uh, later this year, Investors, I, it looks closer to 50-50 between those that mm-hmm. think that we'll just, the, the Fed is done and they'll pause and others who think that we'll have another uh, quarter point right. hike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, you, you get, you're seeing more of a distribution as you go further out in terms of when uh, the cuts may start in 2024. But I think our our assessment of mid, mid-year seems fairly consistent with the, the market view. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you for that. So, so let's turn to uh, what could go wrong. Uh, and again, uh, feels like the economy is kind of sticking to the script we've laid out previously with slow growth, but no recession, uh, inflation coming in, in in large part because the inflation was uh, uh, driven primarily by the supply shocks of the pandemic and Russian war. And as those uh, shocks fade, the fallout from those shocks fade, then inflation can come back in and we don't need a recession or even meaningfully higher unemployment to get inflation back into the bottle, into the, the Fed's target. And in that script still being written and it's still premature to conclude that, you know, that's right. And we're, we're going to get through this without a, an economic downturn. So uh, still a lot of risk around that. Uh, but, uh, you know, even in our, op- in, in the kind of the optimism I, I've been expressing, there is the concern that you know the economy is growing slowly at best, and in that kind of environment, very vulnerable to anything else that can go wrong. And it just feels like there's a 
whole slew of things out there that could go wrong. And so I thought we'd use this podcast as an opportunity to hear about uh, those threats and how big a threat they might be. And uh, uh, we're going to tackle this, what are the threats that are you know most immediate to those that are going to be around for a while. Um, and I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, um, uh, th- this isn't, hard, it's very difficult to, uh, get timing here, but, but, uh, just roughly speaking. And so I thought we'd begin with oil prices and, um, this, you know, I, we forecast lots of things, some things we feel pretty confident in some things, not so much. I, and this is just Mark Zandi talking. I'll, I'm very curious to hear what, uh, what uh, Juan Pablo has to say, forecasting oil prices is pretty tough to do. There's just so many kind of moving parts here, a lot of geopolitical dynamics that are difficult to gauge and so very tough to do. So maybe uh, Juan Pablo, I'll turn back to you and maybe you can give us a sense of, you know, what our baseline forecast is, you know, what are the drivers behind that forecast and, you know, what are the risks around that forecast? Yes, uh, so our, our forecast uh, actually has been pretty good this year. I think like we haven't. Now, are you tooting your own horn? Are you are you tooting your own horn? <laughs> that sounds like you know. Yeah, I guess you're supposed uh, to do that. It's like Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. <laughs> Just keep saying it until everyone believes it. Is that what it is? Well, the when strategy. It, when you write right about forecasting uh, oil prices, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> right. it, it doesn't Go happen it. too often. Yeah. Doesn't happen too often. Fair <laughs> enough. So uh, I feel good. We haven't made substantial changes to our forecast. Uh, Prices were lower than expected, I guess, in in the first half of the year, Uh, mostly because uh, Russia uh, production really was resilient. Uh, Despite all the sanctions, uh, all the the pressures from from the war, uh, Russian oil exports actually haven't changed that much. So that that, I think that was uh, the biggest surprise. In, in the first half of the year. So that kept the oil market in, in, uh, in a small surplus. Uh, so the production above uh, demand for, for, for most of the first half. Uh, things have started to change, uh, mostly because of the OPEC plus uh, cut uh, in the last three, four months. Uh, the latest one was a voluntary cut by Saudi Arabia that was unexpected. Um, it's a sizable one million barrels per day cut from from June levels. So that cut uh, started in in July and it's gonna go through at least uh, September. So in the face of that change in the in the supply, uh, we have our forecast called for oil prices to increase from like around 80 right now to 85 in in, in later this year and into next year. Uh, I felt pretty comfortable with that forecast 85. We we already touched at 85 in July. Uh, there was a uh, 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 Juan. Is that a WTI West Texas Intermediate? Yes, yes, okay. that's WTI. So you know, brand the spread right now with brand is around three four dollars per barrel. So, so for 80, 80, 85 on WTI, we'd be 85 to 90 on Brent. Right. Yeah. Yes. Got it. Okay. So 90. That's that's our baseline, uh, 90 for Brent uh, in the last quarter and and the first quarter of uh, next year. And then uh, as uh, the prices start to gradually decline after that, uh, 
So, I mean, I think uh, it's a ri there, there are risks, of course. Like, uh, I think the okay, main Can I one just, uh, just stop you for a second? I mean, sure. it, my sense is that bringing that back home to something that's more tangible to, to people, at, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of roughly the way I think about it. You know, $80 a barrel oil, which is kind of sort of on WTI, which is where we are now, would be consistent with, you know, something close to $4 a gallon for regular unleaded nationwide. That's kind of sort of where we are. If we go to $85, you know, that may add a quarter uh, to the cost. So we go from for a gallon regular unleaded, we go from four to four and a quarter. If we go to, and just to give people full context, if we go to a hundred dollar barrel oil, people say a hundred dollars, uh, really? Uh, well, you know, back when Russia invaded Ukraine, we got as high as 120, 125 briefly, briefly, but we got there. But if we go to, uh, you know, a hundred dollar barrel oil, that gets you pretty close to five dollars a gallon, uh, per, uh, for regular unleaded. And that, of course, was the record high back last summer when. Russia did invade Ukraine. Is that roughly right? Did I get that roughly right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think that's okay. Fair so, okay. That one, one thing that has happened, uh, started happening last year and, and this year is that we have invent uh, like, so we, we track uh, crude oil inventories and that's a big part of the fundamentals in the market. But uh, there is also like the products inventory and those are really low in the US uh, for diesel and gasoline. So that tells you there is uh, the, the crack spread, which is what made mostly like how much money refineries make. Uh, that also contributes to the to re retail price of gasoline. So basically tight inventories, refineries have more pricing power and they can push prices up for gasoline higher compared to like oil prices. Uh, so that's, that's the situation we're right now. So that, that's uh, that's why gasoline prices are actually almost at the level they were a year ago, even though oil prices still are a little bit below that. Okay, so our baseline that, most that, most likely scenario is oil stays at, you know, goes from eighty to eighty five over the course of the remainder of the year. Gas goes gasoline prices go from four to four and a quarter through the end of the year, and then we see some moderation next year as we get more right. more supplies into the market. Okay. That's the baseline. Yeah, on, on average, we have uh, WTI 78.5 for this year and seven, almost 80 for 24. Okay. So not, not a big change next year in terms of the average for the year. Uh, the, 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 the pattern is uh, prices stay high in the first quarter and they start to, to slowly come down. And uh, in my thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the price of oil now globally is almost a calibrated price. It feels like Saudi Arabia, you said OPEC is cutting back production. It's really Saudi, the Saudis, that they're cutting production in, uh, in an effort to offset weakened demand for oil from China and you know maybe uh, you know other factors to try to keep prices in that eighty dollar barrel range because at eighty bucks. They're making enough money to cover their nut to pay for their fiscal programs. If it's below 80, then they start running deficits, which they don't want to do. But they don't want prices too high over 90 because if it goes over 90, then they start demand destruction. You know, people start pulling back on 
use. And also it, it uh, just incents a, a, a more rapid transition from fossil fuel to, to green. Is that, is that, do you think about it the roughly the same way? Yes. Yes. You um, do. Okay. Yeah. They, they, uh, I mean, we can, prices could go up to 100, but they wouldn't stay there for long. Like the prices will react rapidly to, to the recession that will probably happen after that. So, they 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 don't like that scenario. They prefer more stable prices. So if for I think that for the Saudi Arabia, especially a stability and, and a reasonable price, which I think is around between eighty and ninety for them, uh, that's that's their ideal scenario. In in the 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 risks feel like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but they feel like their risks at this point are to the upside. That if we're gonna if, if we're wrong. It's going to be prices are going to be higher rather than lower. Is that is that right? Yes, uh, I feel less comfortable about that compared to oh, okay. like two three weeks ago, uh-huh. just because of the the latest news on China. Uh, China is going to account for like seventy percent of the increase in oil uh, uh, demand this year. So really, what matters matters in terms of global oil demand growth is is China. Uh, so yeah, we are not. We're seeing a lot of bad economic news coming out of China that has uh, that has actually stopped that rally that we had uh, in, in July uh, following the... But still, I think that I would put the, the probability or the chances of oil topping 90 in the next, you know, six months at around 35%. Oh, okay. So it's still high, yeah. I think. It's, it's, it's higher mm-hmm. than the other option of like... Prices coming down substantially below our forecast, uh, and I think the main reason is that the, the market is the fundamentals. The, the, the global balance is on deficit, uh, so that that keeps uh, that, that could put a pressure on on oil inventories. Uh, so low low oil inventories, uh, Saudi Arabia's apparent commitment to keeping prices. Uh, around 85, 90, uh, I think that's going to be, uh, I can see a scenario where they they extend the 1 million voluntary cut through the through through the end of the year. They haven't committed to the fourth quarter yet. So if they keep that in place for the last quarter and we see some more positive news in China, I can see prices getting to 90 uh, in, the, in the last part of the year. Okay. Well, that, that's consistent with my recession odds. So you're saying 35% probability that oil prices could be meaningfully higher than our baseline, which is 85 bucks on WTI. And and that's about the, the probability I attach to a recession occurring between now and the end of uh, next year. So it feels consistent. And of course, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. So do you think 90 will be uh, uh, enough to trigger a recession in the U.S.? I, I think 90, we're right on the ledge. Uh, I okay. think 100, you know, it, it, you know, if we get closer to five bucks a gallon, I think we're toast, you know, and, and that goes to the fact that oil plays such a central role, that, you know, the obvious that it cuts into consumers' purchasing power. But uh, m- more importantly, in the current context, it adds to inflation expectations, uh, juices up wage growth, uh, and fans inflationary pressures, and I think we'll put pressure on the Fed to do what Martin said they might do, and that is raise rates again more than once. And I don't know that it's going to take 
many more rate hikes on top of the higher oil prices to do us in. So again, because we're so fragile. Chris, let me quickly turn to you. Does that all sound right to you? Anything you want to add on that? It does. The only thing I'd add is I've noticed that the US oil rig counts have been falling over the last year uh, pretty quickly. Do you expect that to continue? I mean, that seems to me another risk factor that the US producers won't respond in short uh, order. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that the, the the shell boom, as we you know saw before the pandemic, that's over. Like that's not going to happen again. Uh, or uh, still, production is growing in the U.S. It's actually going to reach a, a record level this year, and there is going to be a little bit more uh, increase next year. But the rate of growth uh, is is not going to be nearly enough, uh, nearly as as high as it used to be. And the reason is. I think the main reason is, uh, you know, the, the the outlook for the oil for fossil fuels in general. We are seeing the transition. That, so oil oil companies don't want to like these are usually long term investments, and they are very uh, cautious about making those commitments in the face of this uh, outlook for energy transition. Uh, the other factor is productivity. So it doesn't really matter. Like what the situation right now is, yeah, the number of new drilling rigs are coming down, but productivity is actually increasing. So that compensates a little bit for the decline in in drilling activity. Uh, Actually, the the Energy Administration recently made a a big like uh, revision on on productivity for for existing uh, rigs so that Bump uh, uh, actual output uh, higher, so I think that's that's gonna continue into next year. Okay, don't well, expect uh, a big jump in in drilling activity. Thanks, Juan Pablo. That was very helpful. Uh, so that's risk number one, uh, top of the top of mind, and mo- you know that can ha- it feels like that can happen any day. It feels like oil prices can move ten bucks a barrel in a week. So you know uh, we've got to watch that very carefully. Let's move to the next, what could go wrong? And I think uh, chronologically that would be the UAW strike. Is that right, Mike? When when uh, you want to explain what's going on there and when potentially they could strike and let's talk a little bit about what the economic uh, implications of that might be. Sure. Um, the strike would start September 15th. Uh, we're recording, recording right now. It's August 25th, 11 a.m. on the East Coast. And they should be announcing right now on Facebook Live that they voted for strike approval. So Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, um, he promised a more aggressive approach this time around to negotiating with the big three uh, U.S. automakers, so that's Stellantis, Ford, and GM. And uh, they're, they're expected to approve strike uh, today, and the strike will go into place on September 15th when their contract runs out. Um, so digging in a little bit deeper. Uh, this time around, they're going after all three automakers. They usually go after one. Uh, if you remember back in 2019, the United Auto Workers struck uh, against GM for 40 days and instead of striking against all three. Uh, this time they're uh, targeting all three automakers instead of just one. So that, that increases the risk to the economy uh, right there. Um, the impact to the macro economy is, is somewhat limited. 
So we, we talk about what the risk is. There's risks to localities. So you think of um, auto manufacturing towns like Lansing, Michigan, or mm -hmm. Toledo, Ohio. The, there, there's a lot of risks for, for loca localities, but the risk to the macro economy from our investigation is pretty low. I think uh, we, we used that 40-day strike in 2019 as our basis, and we saw that if they even increased it to all three uh, use the same duration of 40 days. It's still about just about three tenths of a percent off GDP uh, in terms of economic loss from the strike. So it's not going to. Would that be in the over. fourth quarter of the year uh, annualized, or is that is that uh, just quarter over quarter? Is that annualized impact? No, just a, just quarter over quarter. So so if I so if I multiply by four, is that 1.2 percentage points off of annualized growth? That's, but if it was if it kept on going, but it's just going to be off oh, that quarter. Yeah, right, right. If it kept on going, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, so, yeah, but okay, okay. But you're saying though, if it's a forty day strike, it's going to shave three tenths of a percent off growth. I can't just annualize that to get to one point two percent. I mean, roughly. It's, it's not annualized, so you wouldn't you you wouldn't multiply it by four since the way it's calculated. Okay. So you're saying it's three tenths off of growth in the Q4. Yeah. Okay. So meaningful, measurable, but not existential in any sense of the word, if it's a 40-day strike. Correct. Okay. Uh, and right now, the likelihood of it going more than 40 days, I'd put that probably about 40%. Uh, a strike at all, I'd put about 75% likelihood. Okay. Just the way that both sides are talking right now, they're not anywhere close in terms of uh, where they would need to be to get a contract passed. But at 75%, they still haven't said if they're going to go after one company, they're going to do all three. Uh, they have said that they, uh, they have about $825 million in their strike fund, which gets paid out to workers at $500 per week. So if they had all they have about 150,000 workers, they all got paid $500 a week. That's uh, 11 weeks that they could strike and still keep getting, getting paid. Um, so 77 days would be, and that's when the strike fund would run out if they're striking across all three companies. Uh, but of course, if they only struck against one company, then that would increase the duration that they could have that strike fund. So you're focused on the lost output. So they go on strike, cars don't get produced. And that lost output, and I assume the multiplier, so-called multipliers, translates into that three-tenths of a percent impact, which again is meaningful, measurable, but not existential. I guess the other concern would be in the current context, kind of like, you know, oil uh, is the inflationary effect. So, you know, one of the kind of thoughts, my thought was that vehicle prices are going to decline here over the next six, nine months, because we're getting more supply, you know, primarily from Japan and Germany, they've been uh, had supply chain issues because of the pandemic and Russian war and they haven't been able to ramp things up as quickly, but that's now changing, getting more supply, more dealer inventory and dealer lots. Prices are starting to roll over and that's going to continue. This UAW strike though, feels like it would throw a monkey wrench into that, at least to some degree. Is that right? Uh, definitely. Yeah. So okay. the, the last strike that we used as comparison, GM reported they'd lost about 900,000 units from production from that 40 days. Uh, so if you take out, we multiply that by 3.17, be the size of the three companies, I take that out to be about 30% of U.S. production for the quarter. Uh, and that, that would really cut into inventories. Inventories are about 70% below where they were coming into 2019. 
Uh, we didn't really see any impact on prices when that inventories came off in 2019, but they, they were stock full on the dealer lots. Now dealer lots are less full than they were. They're more full than they were last year, the year before that, but they're, they're less full than they were in 2019. And so you're, you should expect to see used vehicle prices, which have come down by 17% from their peak, uh, according to wholesale numbers. Uh, we expect it, if there's another 40-day strike, we'd expect it to go up about another 10% on the used vehicle prices. And new vehicle prices, we also expect to see some increase in price, but not that significant. We're estimating about 5% for a 40-day strike. Okay, let me ask it this way. Um, how long a strike would there need to be for the for it to push us into recession? And assume like in Q4 without UAW or anything else going wrong, we're going to get growth that's kind of around 1% to 1.5% GDP growth. What, what kind of strike would take us kind of in a negative territory, do you think? Would it have to last all quarter for that to happen? Or, yeah, you know, it'd have to be over 90 days. It had to be in over 90 days. And you think if it was, then we'd come pretty close to that zero line. Yes. Okay. All right. And of course, the fact that we have less inventory and now more uh, higher vehicle prices, or certainly not, not declining vehicle prices, that just makes it more difficult for the Fed to hold on to the current interest rate and, and not raise. Yep. If we have yeah. housing prices going up and auto prices going up and- yeah. Uh, it's going to be tough to keep the pause on the interest rates, and that's going to be the the real impact if the Fed isn't able to keep the pause. Right. And I guess, I suppose the other point here is that the UAW is just an example of increased labor market strife, right? I mean, we've got all kinds of labor market. It feels like, compared to the history of the past 20, 25 years, a lot of labor market actions going on right now. Yeah, they see success. Uh, unions see success at... Uh, different companies. So you saw the UPS, yeah, UPS uh, contract yeah. went through. Uh, they didn't, thankfully didn't have a strike where uh, more supply chain yeah. issues would have happened. Uh, the Canadian port workers, uh, you see them going on. And then when the unions see success in different places, I think that they call it the contagion effect where uh, other uh, labor unions hold out for better wages, hold out for better uh, uh, terms of agreement. Okay. So let me ask you, what's the probability in your mind of a of a 40 day strike probability of 40 day strike is about 40 45% it's a okay and what's the probability of a 90 day strike uh 5% oh you think it's very low yeah okay, okay so because they run out of cash and they you know they they want to sell anything over 3 months i'd say is 5% so maybe 2 90, between 2 and 3 25 1 and 2 45 just okay. Less than one seventy seventy five. Okay, I was hoping for some symmetry. You'd say thirty five percent. But okay, fair enough. It's less. It's less. Less of a threat than than that. Yes, yeah. because okay. they don't have enough in the strike fund to. Yeah. Stay that way. Okay. All right. Anything else on this you want to bring up before we move on to to uh, Bernard and the potential government shutdown as a what could go wrong. Not unless you want to play the statistics game. I do. I do. I do. We're going to play the statistics game. And I got a good one, actually. Uh, uh, but I want to do one more. What could go wrong? And that's the government shutdown. And Before that, I just wanted to say I got a news notification that yeah. I think they authorized the strike like just 
a couple of minutes ago. So, oh, did they? Yep. Okay. Yes. Yep. All right. So, so uh, Mike got that forecast right, is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go, Mike. I'll toot my own horn then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Like Juan Pablo. Like Juan Pablo says, my forecast was damn good. Yeah. yeah the the, the, the pre bells were coming in at 95%. So I, I yeah. felt pretty confident on that one. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, take take credit, you know? Um, like I heard a great story. Oh, I digress. I won't digress. I was going to tell you a great story, but I'll tell you some other time. Let's move on to the government shutdown. So, uh, Bernard, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the uh, federal government's fiscal year ends at the end of September. On October one, the new fiscal year, the 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 government needs funding to remain open and continue to to do business and continue to operate. That needs a piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. That feels like that's up in the air. So what are the prospects for the government shutting down on October 1 or at some point here? In the yeah. Year? Yeah. So I, I think before I get into that, I just want to set the stage just a little bit to see just to show how we got here. Sure. Because if you had told me a couple months ago that we'd be talking pretty seriously about the risk of a prolonged shutdown, I would have been a bit surprised, not fully surprised given gridlock these days, but still a bit surprised because if you go back to June President Biden signed into law the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which resolved the debt limit crisis, but it also established limits on federal discretionary spending for the coming fiscal year, so fiscal 2024, as well as for fiscal 2025. And originally, I think you, me, everyone else, we were all hopeful that these spending limits would have reduced, if not eliminated, the potential for brinkmanship over the federal budget for this coming fiscal year. And my assumption was just that Congress would without much fuss, you know, or in a reasonably graceful manner, they would pass the 12 annual spending bills that fund all government operations. Um, And then all these 12 spending bills would sum up to the limits established by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And this assumption of mine was partly correct because the Senate has done just that. But unfortunately, it's the House of Representatives, Representatives, which continues to be the problem child. Back in June, many uh, House Republicans were dissatisfied with the Fiscal Responsibility Act because they want to cut federal spending more than the agreed upon limits in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. So in June, you had a small block of Republicans who brought legislative action on the House floor essentially to a halt for, for about a week. Um, and this was you know, overtly out of dissatisfaction to the debt limit deal. Um, and uh, so far, they've only passed one of the 12 annual spending bills. So we haven't really heard much at all about government shutdown risks thus far. And that's because Congress is right now in its uh, August recess. But the House returns uh, from its August break uh, in on September uh, 12th. And at that point, they're only going to have three weeks left to pass their own 11 versions of, the, uh, of those annual spending bills. Then they'll have to forge a compromise with the Senate before funding runs out on September 3rd, uh, 30th. So um, that's a very, very small period of time for you know some sort of a, a budget agreement uh, for, the, for, for the next fiscal year to come about, especially when you have people who are, you know, many Republicans who are just fundamentally dissatisfied with the limits on discretionary spending for these next couple of, uh, for these next two years. Uh, historically, what we've seen whenever, you know, it's rare that we get a full year budget on October 1st or by October 1st. What typically happens is that we get a continuing resolution or a short term spending bill 
that will fund the government uh, typically through mid or early December. And then by then, you typically that gives enough time for uh, for lawmakers to negotiate, come together and and pass a, 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 a bill that funds the government through the rest of the fiscal year. Um, but because of really the extreme dissatisfaction that many in the Republican Party are, are you know, have shown towards this uh, uh, towards the debt limit deal, I think, you know, that there's a possibility that, that that they want to really take a stand, shut the government down uh, to really just, you know, show their constituents or show their supporters that they're really fighting for lower spending. Um, and as a result, I, th I think the risks of a shutdown, a, a shutdown of any length, I would say, is about 50 percent. I uh, shutdown lasting more than two weeks. And the reason why I say t two weeks, because that's the typical pay period for a federal employee. Um, I, I'd say probably a third, you know, that we get a three week, four week uh, shutdown, which would be similar to the record long shutdown that we got in 2018 and 2019. Um, but I, I think there's a non-zero chance that we really do get an even, you know, another record-breaking shutdown, you know, maybe a month and a half, two months. Uh, and, you know, we, we could also explore a scenario where it lasts the full quarter. Um, and those, you know, in, in that case, shutdowns, which generally have been non-events for the economy, I think would be a, a, a shutdown of that length would be potentially um you know, it, it would help us bring us, it would bring the economy to the brink. Yeah. We had Matt Robinson on a, a few podcasts ago, a very good political analyst. And he, he made me scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. He, he mm -hmm. seemed to be attaching a pretty high, I don't know if that's a word heebie-jeebie, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. He uh, attached a pretty high probability, very high that we'd have a shutdown and not an inconsequential probability that it would be prolonged. He was even uh, contemplating it lasting through the end of the year and, you know, ultimately resulting in that 1% sequestration, mm -hmm. you know, that cut across all discretionary defense, non-defense spending that was put into the legislation, the Fiscal Responsibility Act you mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. But it, since then, I, I it, my sense is that things are moving in a more positive direction that, that we've heard kind of sort of from uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House leader, uh, Speaker of the House, and even I think Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate Republicans, kind of sort of saying they didn't really want to go down the sh shutdown path. They were contemplating a CR exactly, because yeah. historically, if you go back and look, it, you know, if it feels like the Republicans got blamed for previous shutdowns, mm -hmm, and exactly. it, politically, that doesn't feel like something you'd want to do. Get blamed for that in the lead up to the next election. Do I have that right? Is that yeah, why no, you have that right? I mean, we're, yeah, okay. we had the, we had the first uh, presidential debate uh, just a couple of nights ago. So the presidential Wasn't that just cycle, last night. Was that presidential debate last or night? Or two nights ago. Oh, was it two nights ago? It's yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the presidential, you know, the 2024 presidential election cycle is underway. So it's, it's um, I think both sides are going to try to refrain from a brinkmanship where they could potentially be blamed by the public. Okay. And a good rule of thumb, and you, you've taught me this, and I'm just going to regurgitate it back and sound like I, I know what I'm talking about, but every week the government is shut down, shaves about a tenth of a percent annualized off of the of a GDP growth, real GDP growth in the quarter in which it occurs. Uh, probably a little less than that in the first few weeks, but mm -hmm. a lot more than that after four, three, four, five weeks. So if you kind of do the simple arithmetic, if the, if the shutdown began on October 1, lasted through the end of the year, 
that would shave 1.2 percentage points off growth. And again, if growth without that was going to be to one and one and a half percent, that puts us right on the ledge, you know, for recession. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. about right? That, that, that's correct. But the the key thing is that as you, every week that this lasts, or, for, or the longer that the shutdown lasts, the costs become even bigger and they become even uh, more difficult to quantify. So the longer that the shutdown goes on, federal employees are not being paid, so they have to pull back on their spending. Then you have the whole constellation of federal contractors you know, throughout the country who also start to see stoppages in their in the work contracts that they were expecting from the federal government. So they also have to lay off or, you know, they also have to uh, tighten the belt. Um, and then I think the most obvious to everyone is national, you know, for example, things like the national parks start to close. So areas in the country, tourism hubs in the country start to suffer from a lack of consumer spending. So over time, the costs really start to snowball, but they're, but they're, it's just more difficult to, to uh, game out what they are. And just very quickly, quick me if I'm wrong, the longest shutdown was under President Trump for 35 days. I yeah, think. yeah. And even that being the longest, it only so it, it's that shutdown straddled two quarters of so the final yeah. quarter of 2018, where it shaved only a tenth of a percent or two tenths of a percent. And then in the first quarter of the of uh, of 2019. And again, that only shaved, you know, a tenth or two tenths of a percent that quarter. So it was very much on the margins. Uh, and but I also think one last thing that I think is is concerning is that when you have a shutdown, all of our favorite government statistical agencies uh, are also shut down. So we have a data fog, and that's problematic for financial markets, for businesses, uh, especially for us, you know, that rely on on these key uh, government statistics to get a sense of where the current state of the economy is. Well, so that's the, it's more likely we'll be right, right? Why well, yeah. It's more likely we'll be right if there's no data. Yeah. Yeah, just saying. So, just saying. So. Uh, I had one other thing. Oh, one one last question, Bernard. Mm -hmm. So, how long a strike, or excuse me, shutdown would there need to be? Do you think to push us into recession? It would have to last the entire quarter through Thanksgiving. I'd say for that to really be. Oh, okay. Oh, only through Thanksgiving. Okay. Thanksgiving, December. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, and even the even if we get those that one percent automatic spending cuts. You know, I, I, it, it wouldn't help, but I, I, we still have to think that the, for this current fiscal year, we got a significant near 10% increase in the discretionary budget, and a, about 40% of that is going to bleed over into these next two years. So that would help ameliorate some of the hit to, to federal spending. So it wouldn't be, we wouldn't feel that cut necessarily this next year, uh, but over time, you know, that uh, that would hurt and it would be a drag on the economy. Got it. Okay, perfect. Okay, let's um, let's move forward. Um, this, let's play the statistics game, and then we'll come back to student loans and, and long-term rates. The game is uh, we each come up with a statistic. Uh, uh, the rest of us try to figure that out through uh, clues and deductive reasoning and and uh, and uh, questions. And the best statistic is one that's not so easy we get it immediately, one that's not so hard that we never get it. And It'd be great if it's uh, apropos to the topic at hand. <clears throat> so, Chris, I'm going to go with you because these other guys are novices. So, I'll let you go first. Okay, I'll, we'll we'll start easy too. Again, okay, I, it's not that difficult. Three point five percent, the unemployment rate. Okay, is that it? Close. Three point oh, okay. three. <laughs> what is it? Three point three. Three point three percent. Months. Months. Oh, three point three. Housing inventory. Yeah. Yes. With what specifically? Uh, probably single family new housing at hand. That's roughly in 
Is that I, mean, I looked at housing statistics yesterday, but and I saw that number, but I don't remember quite what he, it was. He might be playing a little bit with us, uh, Martin. It might be like mm. condo inventories or something. No, no, I don't. No, no, it's single I, family I'm detached. Uh, is it is it uh, existing or new? I new. Oh, new. no, it's existing. It's existing. Yeah, it's yeah. existing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's that's a good one. That so explain that that's a good statistic. Yeah, so that uh, that number is rising a little bit, right? 3.3 months is still a very uh, low level of months of inventory um, out there relative to history or pre-pandemic levels. But it's it's been increasing now over the last uh, six to nine months here. So things have been steadily moving in that positive direction, but mostly because sales are so low. Right. It's just that the level of sales activity is so low. It's not that you have a large number of people listing their homes for sale. Right. Those inventories in absolute terms remain very low. So uh just going to the uh the Fed policies and high interest rates. We have mortgage rates now well above seven percent on their way to probably seven and a half, maybe eight percent even. So we're gonna continue to see a slowdown in um in home sales uh for the foreseeable future. And so that's gonna be part of the the outlook here in terms of uh, potential negative. Do you think uh, the increase in inventory is consistent with kind of the narrative we've been thinking was going to play out where <clears throat> because of life events, divorce, death, child, uh, uh, children, uh, job change, that people, they don't really want to, you know, economically, they they don't want to move because they've got a three, three and a half percent mortgage. If they, they, they sell and buy and get another mortgage, it's going to be at seven and the cost is prohibitive. So they're really holding on, but at some point they, they just there's no choice here. They got to move, and that inventory build we're starting to see is a reflection of that starting to happen. Or is it, do you think something else is going on? Yeah, I, I think I think that's certainly a, a big part of it. Right big to your part. point, the lock-in effect is even larger now, right? As as the rates keep going on, yeah. so my incentive is even stronger to some extent. Although it's already pretty strong, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, if I have a three and a half percent mortgage. Um, so I think there's that. You might have some shedding of second homes or investment properties to some extent, right? There is some weakness out there. Consumers are a little nervous about the future of house prices. You might see some inventory there, but that's pretty limited um, as well, right? There are not a lot of people with second homes that they're looking to offload at this point. So but yeah, I think it's going to be a long, slow drag here uh, to restore equilibrium. Right. I think we have prices down now 5% peak to trough, the trough being sometime in 2025. Okay. That yeah. was pretty good. Martin got that. I mean, I I, yeah. I, yes. I was going to say it, but he beat me to the punch. So that's pretty good. Impressive. Novice is really inappropriate. That that was professional, I thought. Yes. Just, well just, just got lucky. <laughs> no, it's only 50% right. And humble too. See Juan Pablo, see how that's done? <laughs> that, that, that's humble. That's humble. Okay. <laughs> I'm only I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Uh, Mike, you're up next. I can't wait to hear your statistic. I'm sure this is going to be like 11.5 million. Is it vehicle related? What do you think? <laughs> oh, auto assembly. Yeah. 11. Point, number of units. Cars, vehicles. Number of vehicles. Okay. Okay. Is that production? That's North American production of vehicles. U.S. assemblies of motor vehicles, latest reading as of August 16th, <laughs> the, the highest since 
that we've had in over four years. So Juan Pablo, there. Juan Pablo, you see how that's done? I'm just saying. Now that, that's <laughs> masterful, right? Yeah, yeah. Greatest of all time. <laughs> of course, I said North American production, but he threw a, threw a little monkey wrench in there. It's U.S. production. <laughs> Are you sure, Mike? It's not North American. It's U.S. Hundred uh, percent sure. Hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and, and and your point is what? Why why did you bring that up? Uh, U.S. production is above where it was in 2019 and uh, July 2019. So we are fully back. We were above 2019's uh, total produced at this point uh, for North American production. Or for uh, you got me saying North American uh, for U.S. production, <laughs> and uh, so that's that's a signal that we will have more downward pressure on new vehicle prices and their substitute good used vehicle prices. Uh, if we're looking around the world, China, the largest producer of vehicles, uh, they are at above where they were in 2019. They are uh, where they were last year, so they haven't slowed down production. Uh, Japan and Germany are both 20% above where they were last year. So we do have more coming online. Uh, if we don't have a major strike taking all these inventories, we should continue to see uh, pressure, especially on the new vehicle side of things. That's great. Okay, perfect. That was a great statistic. Okay, let's uh, because I I don't want to run out of time, and we we've got a number of participants there. Although I've got actually a pretty good good one, I'll, I might save it for for next week. Uh, but um, uh, we, uh, Bernard Martin uh, Juan Pablo, who 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 thinks they've got a really good statistic? I do. I oh, I, I knew Bernard I does. <laughs> Renaissance man, baby. All right, Bernard, you're next. What's your uh, sixteen thousand. And this this statistic literally came out within the past 30 minutes. I've been oh. refreshing the BLS page for this statistic. Oh, the BLS page. That's a big hint. 16,000. Oh, I know. No, I don't know. Is it has does it have to do with the UAW strike? No, but it's in the strike report. Yes, exactly. It is 16k is is but 16k it's the other big strike that's going on what's the other big strike that's going on right now the uh, oh it's a, it's the uh the hollywood uh, Holly, yeah, yeah actors or, or writers i should say exactly exactly so um wait just, wait wait juan pablo i'm just saying this, <laughs> that was very uh, impressive. that is that is how it's done juan that's pablo. impressive that's <laughs> <laughs> thank you that he said that so nicely that was that chris never says that to me he never says that uh, that's okay. <laughs> all right Bernard, go ahead go ahead yeah so this so uh normally we don't focus at all on the the monthly bls uh strike report um but we are you know i, th I think this is a month where we are uh you know we do need to pay attention uh, because of all the strike activity, it's not just the forthcoming one potentially with the the UAW, but we've had the writer strike, uh, and we're now we've but even bigger we've had the actors strike. I was actually expecting this to be a much bigger number because when you look at uh, the labor uh, at the media reports, it seems that the labor union, the SAG-AFTRA uh, labor union, that represents about 160,000 uh, actors, recording artists, and other media pro professionals. I, no, so, Bernard, let me stop you for a second. I think they actually in the work stoppage report they do have that separate. They do, yeah, yeah. That's separate. It's in there. The hundred. That's separate. Yeah, yeah. I but think for the just the the writers or something maybe. This is just the actors. This is oh, just, just the, the I'm sorry, just the actors. The actors, the actors right. um, and you do have you have two two types of uh, strike reports. So you have the work stoppages program, 
but that's just any strike that occurs in the giving month. But the but the BLS strike report, these are strikes uh, that affect more than a thousand workers in a given establishment. And then these are strikes that occur throughout the pay period that includes the 12th of the month. So these in order to if, if a striker uh, in order for uh, someone who's striking not to be included in the you know in the monthly jobs report they have to be in strike for the entire pay period that includes the 12th of the month and that's not normally the case strikes will you'll have a few days or a couple or just depending on the timing they might not show up these strikes might not show up in the jobs report um but this uh but this hollywood strike has been ongoing for the past several weeks uh we expected it that it would show up in the august uh in, in the august jo jobs report um, and based on, you know, our, our preliminary forecast for uh, August uh, non-farm payroll additions was going to be 180K. But because of this uh, strike report, we're now going to uh, slash that down by by a little over, uh, you know, 16,000. Uh, so, you know, I think we could get a pretty weak uh, jobs number or a weaker jobs number, probably one of the weakest uh, jobs number in a while. Uh, but I would just caution readers or uh, I would caution uh, the audience that that is in part due to some of these strike activity. It's not necessarily saying anything about the underlying fundamentals of the uh, of the economy. So that's in this case, in the case of looking ahead to the August jobs report, I think this uh, monthly strike report took on added importance. Great. That was a good one and very timely. Yeah. So, um, Martin, JP, I'm going to just move on because we're running out of time and I want to get to the next what could go wrong. And let me now turn to you, Chris, and can you just give us an update on uh, your thinking around the, the end of the student loan debt uh, payment moratorium? Uh, sure. So <clears throat> unlike uh, oil prices, interest rates, or even the UAW strike, there's no uncertainty about this one. Um, student loan payments are going to be restarting here in October, right? The moratorium actually ends at the end of August, and we have a month uh, of September where statements will go out to uh, borrowers telling them, how much they owe, uh, what the payments uh, should be, where they should send them in. And then in October, they'll actually start submitting. Uh, we have about 24, we estimate about 24 million borrowers who are in forbearance today who will be at least eligible to, or required to start making payments um, in October. It, you asked, if we estimate about $300 as the average a student monthly student loan payment that gives us around seven billion dollars a month or eighty six billion dollars a year. I would, but I would say that that's the outside uh, estimate of what the impact could be. That's if if all of these borrowers did start uh, paying that that average amount immediately. It's good reason to believe that won't that actually won't be the case because of uh, several actions that the Biden administration has put forward here. One is that um, it is uh, told the um, the uh, credit rating agent or the credit reporting agencies to not um, report out the uh, the delinquencies of borrowers who do not make their student loan payments. So the impact on credit reports would be uh, minimal at this point if a borrower does not start paying right away. That um, that order would go through uh, what would exist for a year with the possibility of being extended. So it limits some of the incentive, if you will, or the necessity of making a payment right away. Can I ask on that one, Chris, before you move yeah. on? The 24 million, what, what's your sense? Uh, how many people won't pay because there's no real penalty for not paying? Because the services aren't going to report that to the bureaus. It's not going to ding their credit score. 
Yeah, I've been. So my thought process is that yeah. um, you know there were people who weren't able to pay before the pandemic, or the certainly before the moratorium. There were people already in trouble, struggling to make their payments. Is around uh, 10, 15 percent. So I'd ex- I expect that same group here, even though there have been increases in wages and whatnot, that's that group is still facing a lot of financial pressure, right? These tend to be lower income um, borrowers, people who didn't necessarily finish their education, so they're not able to reap the benefit uh, that would come um, from actually having a degree. So I, I expect that that you know at least 10, 15% are not going to make a payment because they just aren't able to, right? They, they don't have the resources to. And that this, um, this uh, additional executive order just makes that a little bit easier for them to make that decision, right? They're, they're going to essentially, at a minimum, they're looking to extend some time here, maybe improve their finances and then start uh, paying again as needed. But on top of that, this, another reason to believe that you know, uh, even uh, an even smaller share may actually start paying is that there's a there are new repayment programs that have been introduced, particularly the SAVE program. Mm-hmm. So it's saving on a valuable education, I believe is the acronym, which would reduce the uh, amount that um, borrowers have to pay to 10% of their income this year. And then um, 5% would be the maximum they'd have to pay next year. Uh, that depends on certain income qualifications, but that would reduce that $300 average, for example, down to maybe 250 right? So that's that's going to further reduce the impact here that um, restarting payments will have. So I'd estimate maybe it's a two-tenths of a percentage point on GDP. Oh, okay. Uh, Just two-tenths. Just two-tenths. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, if, if know, it was 80 billion, be... 80 billion is the outside maximum. And if it was 80 billion, kind of do the arithmetic, that would be one point again, one point two percent of GDP, which would because you know eighty billion out of two point four trillion is three tenths annualized. That's one point two percent. So you go to you basically at zero. If everyone started repaying and they didn't and they cut all their other spending, right, consistent with that payment, and that's not going to happen. So you're saying after accounting for you know, the income-driven repayment plans after accounting for the fact that people just aren't going to pay because they're not going to get dinged after accounting for the fact that some have lots of resources, they're not going to cut back at all just because right. they're going to be shilling out three, $400 more a month. It comes out to two-tenths of a percent. So again, like the UAW strike, meaningful, measurable, but not at all existential. Yeah, on its own, not enough. On its own, on its right. own. If right. we start Which layering all these factors yeah. in- Right, we get an oil shock on top of this. Maybe, yeah, certainly this is going to yeah. have some impact. But yeah, right. If this is the if the student loan repayments are the only thing that happens, it's going to slow things down, but not materially. Yeah, and then one thing that folks are concerned about, clearly in our world, in some of our clients, is does this mean that delinquencies on other liabilities are going to rise? You know, because cards or consumer finance loans, they're already suffering pretty significant increase in delinquency default. Is this going to add to that to any meaningful degree? It'll add some. I'm, I, some, yeah. I believe, but uh, I think that because, again, because of that order that, uh, right. for delinquencies not to really affect your credit, at least not in the short term, the uh, payment hierarchy, the ordering of payments for student loans is probably going to be pretty low, right? I'm going to pay my auto loans and credit cards first because the impact is is greater 
if I don't. Um, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So. so it feels like, and we're going to go now to interest rates, but it feels like all these things we've been talking about are by themselves, not enough to do us in. But obviously, if more than one or a bunch of these things happen, that that could be pretty quickly enough to do us in, right? I think so. And they also yeah. are compounding, right? They'll drag on over time. Yeah, right, right. Okay. All right, let's, let's turn to that last what could go wrong. And I, I should, before we do this, preface this by saying there's a lot of things that can go wrong. We're only picking off. A few of them, the ones that seem most pressing, most immediately given events. And uh, next up is this recent surge. I don't know if surge is the right word, but this significant increase in long-term interest rates. So the the benchmark here is the 10-year treasury yield. If I go back, I don't know, four, correct me if I'm wrong, Martin, four, six weeks ago, it was sitting 3.75. The 30-year fixed mortgage rate was just north of six, you know, something like that. Now we're sitting at four and a quarter, four, three on the 10 year. And the 30 the year fix is now, I think hit a new high. It's at seven and a quarter or something like that, 730, something that, so it's, you know, moved up quite a bit. So question to you, first question to you is, uh, you know, what's behind this increase? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course I'm going to ask, you know, what do you think where we're headed here, you know, in terms of the increase? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, 30, 40 basis points in a month is a bit. It's also high in level by historical standards. The yield was around 2.5% in the 2010s. Now, the interest rate is a price, like many other things. And the way the economists think about this is in terms of supply and demand. Right? It's the price that the Treasury, for instance, pays to borrow over the next 10 years um, that lenders are requesting to basically be willing to, to lend. And over the past month or so, there's essentially three factors that play roughly with equal probability weight, I should say. Uh, the first one is the realization that the US economy is doing better, recession risks are fading, and that has caused the Fed to most strongly signal that rates will have to remain high. Fed has signaled that for a while, but markets weren't necessarily believing that as much. If you go back a couple of months, a lot of market participants still expected cuts, either even late in 2023 or in early 2024. By now, that's shifted pretty firmly, as we discussed earlier and later in the year. And longer-term rates, in part, are an average of expected short-term rates. So as this expectation rises, the long-term rate comes up a little bit. The second component is expected inflation. That was also already discussed. Um, yields are nominal. right? If I want 2% after inflation, I think expected inflation is 2.5%. I have to, t- to ask for a nominal yield of around 4.5%. Oil plays a big role in this. Bond traders especially keep an eye on this because, obviously, it's an important driver of inflation. And the third component is a little bit more technical um, that has to do with risk perceptions, ultimately. Uh, What is embedded in long-term bonds is what we refer to as a risk term premium. And it's basically the risk that you as an investor take on by locking yourself into, say, a 10-year bond today, whereas you're holding 10 successive one-year bonds. Um, The reason why that is, is broadly speaking, both of these strategies should roughly pay you the same amount, right? The same annual interest rate should be the same on both of these. But the problem is we don't really know what future interest rates are going to be, right? So I have to make a guess on what the one year is going to be a year down the road, two years down the road, and so forth. And financial markets do this all the time, but there's an error around that guess. So if I'm getting that wrong, I may end up doing worse by holding a 10-year, which is fixed in rate. And that's the term premium in essence. It is associated with all sorts of risks that we get inflation wrong, that the Federal Reserve becomes 
less competent in hitting inflation target, that there's more quarreling, for instance, about budget and so forth. The term premium is still very low by historical standards, so it's not per se a red flag. It's negative, but it did tick up a little bit in the last four weeks, and that contributes mm -hmm. to rising yields. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of uh, inflation expectations, inflation volatility and uncertainty, so inflation generally. Second, you mentioned the term premium. That's the yield spread that investors demand for uh, buying a long-term versus short-term bond, although weirdly it's negative, but we won't even go down that path. And the third is uh, higher real short-term interest rates because the economy feels like it's been performing more strongly and that's getting embedded in expectations around what the Fed's going to do with short-term interest rates. And, and this run-up, this half a point increase or so in long-term 10-year treasury yields is due roughly in equal measure to each of these factors. Is that roughly right? That sounds right. I mean, the one that's ticked down a little bit in the last couple of days is the inflation expectation, but it's still a little elevated compared to where it was two, okay. uh, a month ago. Okay. So say we're at four and a quarter. Uh, our baseline is this is it. We're not going any higher than this. I mean, in the long run, we expect the 10-year treasury yield to be equal to the nominal potential growth rate of the economy, nominal potential GDP growth, which is 4%, 2% real GDP growth, the real potential growth of the economy, plus 2% inflation. And we're, we're kind of sort of there. And you know, this is a market, like any financial market, it, it's there's speculators and momentum players. So it can go above this for a while, below this for a while, but right now it's 4%. So that's kind of our forecast. This is the end of the story right here. You know, Fixed mortgage rates, they're elevated. The spread is very high by historical standards and we won't go down that path either. But in over time, we expect that spread to get back to something more normal, which would suggest that the 30-year fixed rate loan should settle in somewhere five and a half, five and three quarters. And again, we're over 7%. That's the baseline. Uh, does that sound about right to you? And what are the risks to that uh, for higher rates, lower rates here in the near term? What do you think? Yeah, so there's two questions, right? So one is near term and what's the equilibrium rate? Um, in terms of near term, I think breaching something like 4.5% is pretty probable, actually. And the, the reason for that is twofold. For one, there is still- You see, a, you see how you said that? Pretty probable. But uh, that's like open to a gazillion interpretations of what, you know, pretty probable. Is that like, in my interpretation, that's over 50% probability. Is that it's, right? I would think so, yeah. And okay, fine. I'll, I'll give you my, my thinking around that. I mean, we've already been at 4.36%, right? It's 15 basis points. It's not a lot, right? Yeah. Expectations don't have to shift a lot. There is still a segment of the market that's pricing a recession risk. Right? So if you look at CME futures as a rough proxy, uh, as of today, about 20% expect a cut in March. Yesterday, before the Jackson Hole speech, it was closer to 30%. So there are still traders in the market that have a more bearish outlook on interest rates. If recession risks continue to fall, which is our assumption, they're going to come around and that's going to shift expectations a little bit by pure just you know market movements. Uh, inflation risk, right? If the energy thing comes up, that also has the potential to, to push yields a little bit higher. And then, of course, the question is, what's the Fed going to do? I mean, the Fed has roughly has a sense that they are where they need to be. Economic data still kept accelerating through the second quarter, but monetary policy acts with lags. So it might take some time for that to really fully play out. If the Fed is wrong about that, or if they think they're wrong about that, there's always the risk that they're going to pivot again. Right. So in factoring all of that in, just the shift from we no longer expect a recession broadly versus most people in March expected a recession. 
plus inflation risks, plus the Fed pivoting, I would say at least breaching it is more likely than not. If it's going to sit there is a different question, right? So if you're going to end up at yeah. 5.5%, that's probably less likely. I think that's probably less than 50% significantly. So, so because it is a market, it can move, feels like it can move 15 basis points in, in like an hour. Uh, getting four and a half isn't, that seems pretty probable, is what you're saying. It seems yes. Like so, but so, you're so, saying it's unlikely it's going to hang there to the degree that it would do a, a lot of damage. Well, carefully, I'm going to say yes to that. I don't think that's unlikely. Okay. Of course, the problem in financial markets is always when rates raise above a certain level, things can break. We don't exactly know what can break, right. so there's uncertainty around. The risk is always there, that that for sure. I don't think it's right. particularly likely, though. No. Right, right. Okay. And what about my kind of frame around where the long, 10-year yields should be long run, the 4%, the nominal potential GDP growth? How mm -hmm. do you, what do you think about that frame? Is that a useful frame? Do you agree with that? I think so. I mean, so the, the way the economists think about the long-term rate in general, it's the rate that prevails when the economy is in equilibrium. So when there is potential growth is equal to actual growth, where we're not in recession, the economy is not overheating, nothing like that. And historically speaking, we don't know what that is because we're not usually at equilibrium, so we have to estimate it. For most of the historical period, the estimates you find since the 1960s for the real equilibrium rate pretty much track potential growth. And so you add 2% inflation to that, that gives you the long-term value. There are some complications around this. If you look at estimates after 2008, they actually come in significantly lower. It's about a 50 to 100 basis point. A lot of that is associated with the Fed's quantitative easing. And as a city, the Federal Reserve went out and bought trillions of treasury bonds that may have depressed the level a little bit. Of course, the Fed has rebooted that over last year, at least in part, is rolled off a trillion. And the question is, as that continues, is that effect going to go away, right? So that's one of the factors that, that plays into this. There's other factors that could go the other way. For instance, if the Treasury keeps racking up debt hypothetically, right? So debt to GDP is pretty high. That's currently well over 100% of GDP. If we keep racking up deficits, eventually credit risk becomes a problem, right? So lenders, bondholders might be concerned about the long-term ability of the US government to repay that. That would push the long-term rate up over potentially what it is right now, right? And there's literally three or four or five other theories that are out there that, that create a deviation. But for a benchmark, thinking about it in terms of productivity growth, population growth, plus expected inflation, I think is a pretty good baseline. Yeah, well, one last question, and this may be an unfair question. So what 10-year treasury yield do you think would be necessary for what length of period to do us in? And then it, it may, the answer may be it depends on why long-term rates are higher. But you know, answer that question any way you want to answer it. Or you could say, Mark, I'm not answering the question. Uh, yeah, I'm not really. Bernard will then answer the question because he he is the Renaissance man and he knows. The so so the, the reason why I don't have an answer for that. I think um, if the conventional sort of economic wisdom is correct, I don't think it would be a whole lot higher. I mean, you're looking literally at maybe in the vicinity of... He, he's so good. He could be 25, 50 basis Pretty points. probable, you know, all these... Yeah, basically I'm saying nothing. Not <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, data exactly. dependent. Yeah. It's data dependent, that's right. Uh, so the reason why I don't think it, if, if the current economic wisdom is right, if the Fed tightens a lot more, uh, it's a bit like the oil price, right? So by by where we think we are in terms of equilibrium, we look very restrictive. But of course, the concern is, and Chris had spoken to this earlier, the labor market still looks by historical standards 
very strong consumption is picking up and so forth. And maybe the thinking then is, well, it's possible that the neutral federal fund rate is higher than what it is. And if that's the case, then we're not actually that restrictive, which in mm-hmm. turn also means the 10-year has room to go higher. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm from a pa- practical perspective uh, concerned, because that's what I do, is how much can the banking system take? How much can the stock mar- market take? And a lot of that looks stretched, as we know. I mean, we've seen the banking turmoil in March. Um, there's other areas of exposure. It's not just securities. It's CRE. A lot of that is going to come due next year. What's credit risk going to be if the 10-year picks up on that as, as people try to refinance these, these loans? And it's a bit of a black box because, in part, the data doesn't exist. And the thing about financial crises is it usually only takes a couple of bad eggs. Right? If you have one or two players that look really risky, it can infect the entire system. Quantifying that probability is hard. If that's going to hit at 10%, sorry, at 50 basis points more or or 75, it's hard to say. Good. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. It's a tough one. Hey, uh, we're at time, but I I want to end with one last question to Chris. So, you know, Chris, uh, you see how I kind of frame this, what what could go wrong. I pick my kind of five likely candidates of what could go wrong here most immediately. If you had to pick another one, which what would it have been? Because you are the the, you know, the relative bearer, so you know, I'm sure you're thinking about this all the time. And you've you've made a, you've made the point that if we're going into recession, risks are so high because there's a lot of we're we're fragile, we're growing slowly, and there's a lot of what what could go wrongs out there. What what else would you throw into the mix that we didn't consider? Well, my top, I think we considered is the top is just Fed makes a mistake here, right? Yeah. Or a bit of a data fog, or lags in the data, right? They're trying to do their best. They're mul- they're juggling multiple objectives. So that would be top of the list. One we haven't really touched on uh, all that much is a credit crunch, banking credit crunch. Yeah, right. We made it through the the spring, and looks bank like the banking system has settled down. But as Martin pointed out, there's still lots of risks to the banks out I there. I view that when- as kind of an evergreen. What could go wrong? These others are more you know here and now. But you're absolutely right. That's clearly a threat at any point yeah. in time. And I see that as an accelerator, right? You you get some uh, some of that uh, interest rate hike activity going on and suddenly, you know, CRE values are impacted and the banking system starts to unravel, right? So that's my preoccupation is that there are some additional risks out there that just get enhanced uh, by even a, a relatively minor shock. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I think we're going to call it a podcast. Uh, we covered a lot of ground, and I think uh, you know I found that uh, you know very and and you know I I'm going to toot our, my own horn. I thought this was a well designed podcast, right? Pod, why Juan Pablo? You see how I do that? I think I'm going yeah. to take a little bit of credit for that. Well designed <laughs> podcast, but only because I've got great colleagues who you know know what they're talking about and can really provide a lot of insight on on all these topics. So thank you guys. And dear listener, I hope you found this of some value and we'll talk to you next week. Take care now.